0: Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. You may be seated. Before 1492, Spanish coins showed the Straits of Gibraltar with a Latin inscription, Na Plus Ultra. In English, it meant, No More Beyond. So, as far as men knew, the western end of the Mediterranean Sea, marked by the Straits of Gibraltar, was the end of land. In that year, however, Columbus discovered the coast of America across that great sea. When he returned from his voyages, the coins that had been in circulation were reissued. But now they bore the inscription, PLUS ULTRA, which translated means more beyond this became the motto of the spanish crown more beyond i like that in the same way the lord jesus christ once passed through the straits of death and returned bringing an abundant evidence that there is a land in which we cannot see now they sometimes tell us that no one has ever came back from the other world to give assurance of it But this is simply not true because Jesus left that glorious realm to walk this dusty world. And by doing so, he authenticated the unseen world. And now, amid all the proofs of immortality, no evidence is so decisive as the resurrection of Christ. Without that, there's absolutely no hope beyond the grave. Author Oz Guinness tells a compelling sad story about the 19th century Japanese haku poet known as Essa. When he was a young child, Essa's mother died, which was the first of many tragedies in his life. Many years and many sorrows later, including the death of his daughter, looking for answers, Essa went to a Zen master for solace. The master reminded Essa what Zen Buddhism teaches, which is the world is just an illusion, and our lives are like the morning dew which will evaporate with the rising sun. And although Essa remained committed to his Buddhist worldview, he still yearned for a more hopeful experience. Christians would say that Essa shared our common longing for the hope of the resurrection. When he returned home, he penned these following words. The world is due. The world is due. And yet, and yet. Guinness comments about S's poem by writing, here is a truth that should make all of us stand still in our tracks, but it is expressed in such distilled beauty That the fragrance of its sorrow becomes such a jewel of poetry that its lesson is easily lost. Essa, the orthodox Zen believer, must say the life is only due. But Essa, the father, the husband, and the human being, with his agonized grief and tortured love, can only cry out into the unfulfilled darkness where Zen sheds no light with the words, and yet he feels the inescapable tension between the logic of what he believes and the logic of who he is i find that terribly sad s's despairing refrain of the phrase and yet makes total sense from a secular standpoint and only finds its hopeful satisfaction and fulfillment (laughs) When Christ swallows up death in victory, when in triumph we are promised, Where, O grave, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Verse 21, please. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, <clears throat> excuse me. even so the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father raises the dead, so I too raise the dead, declared Jesus. This would be a mind-blower to the Jews who taught that God alone is the keeper of three separate keys. And they are the key to the heavens, which he uses when the rain falls, the key to the womb, which he uses when a couple conceives, and the key to the grave, which he uses to resurrect mankind. But here comes Jesus on the scene saying, I have those same keys. Just as the Father opens the grave and gives life, so do I. And in the next few verses, Jesus will say, Just as the Father receives honor, so must I. If you don't honor me with the same honor you give him, then you're not honoring him at all. Now keep in mind, at this point, Jesus has not raised anybody from the dead. In about three months from this point, he will raise up the widow's son at Nain. And in about six months from now, he would raise up the daughter of Jairus. And in chapter 11, we will see him raise Lazarus from the dead. But I think his resurrection that he speaks of is not only physical death, but spiritual death as well. The New Testament frequently describes unbelievers as those who are spiritually dead. Paul charged the Romans to present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. He reminded the Ephesians that in their unregenerate state, they were dead in their trespasses and sins. Later in that epistle, the apostle expressed a gospel invitation where it says, awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. To the Colossians, he wrote, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all of your transgressions. The Apostle John also describes salvation as having passed out of death into life. And so the Lord Jesus says, I am the giver of life. Now it goes without saying In order to be able to give life, you must be the source of life. This would be an outrageous claim for any mere human. It is true that doctors can give medicine or administer treatment in order to delay death, but they cannot give life to someone who's even been dead for just one day. Now, it is true that God used the Old Testament prophets to raise the dead, but none ever dared claim credit only god can create something from nothing and then fill it with life but first we have to admit that in a spiritual sense we were dead before salvation maybe we could say the difference between uncle sam and jesus christ is uncle sam will enlist you unless you are healthy And Jesus won't enlist you unless you are dead. So what is God looking for in the world? Assistance? No. The gospel is not a help wanted ad. The gospel is a help available ad. God is not looking for people to work for him in their own strength, but people who will let him work mightily in and through them. The problem is many people think they are alive when in actuality, in a spiritual sense, they are still dead. And here's another problem. Many people claim to be alive and may even outwardly look like they are full of life, but it's only a facade. On one occasion, Jesus expresses quite pointedly by saying, What are you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites? You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. These words can be true of anyone. To a certain extent, you and I can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps morally. What I mean is, A thief can reform himself and stop stealing. And having worked off his debt to society, he can even recapture a certain measure of respect and trust from his family. An alcoholic can overcome his weakness for drink. He can regain useful employment and again become a credit and asset to society. We admire those who are able to do this. But the truth of the matter is, although we are able to do this outwardly so that people may admire us as the Pharisees were able to do, we are nevertheless unable to do anything about the state of our hearts. Thus, we cannot make ourselves loving if we are not loving. We cannot make ourselves humble if we are not humble. And above all, we cannot make ourselves righteous as God counts righteousness if we are not. The lost sinner is as lifeless and helpless as a corpse. No matter how an undertaker may prepare a corpse, it is still dead. And no corpse is any deader than any other corpse. If you are dead, you are dead. And because of that, the lost sinner is helpless to save himself and certainly cannot give himself life. Forgive me for using this illustration before lunch, but think of the Civil War. Imagine there has been a great battle fought three days prior. As you would survey the battlefield, you would see the dead bodies of many different men. And while it is true they are all in differing stages of decay, none of them are any deader than the other. The guy killed in the first five minutes of battle is just as dead as the guy who was killed five minutes before it ended. So too in a religious sense. You may look at the town drunk clutching that bottle of Mad Dog 2020 and think, How sad it is that someone would allow their lives to hit rock bottom like that. But in regards to being dead in sin, the wealthiest man in Princeton is just as dead, even though he drinks brandy out of a crystal goblet. What I mean is, as it pertains to spiritual life, they are exactly the same in the eyes of God. This is why we need Jesus to give us spiritual life. And thankfully, he has the power to give spiritual life to the spiritually dead. Jesus promised, whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst. But the water I give him will become in him a well of water springing up into eternal life. The minute you decide to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, the power of the Holy Spirit comes into your life. It's the power of the resurrection, which is the exact same thing that raised Jesus from the dead. Think of the things that are immovable slabs in your life right now. Things like your bitterness, your insecurity, your fears, and your self-doubts. Like the stone in front of the tomb of Christ, these things can be unseated and rolled away. The more you know him, the more time you spend in his word and in prayer and in fellowship with the saints, that will be the degree that you will grow into the power of the resurrection. Because he was resurrected, he gave us that same hope. Think of Christ's resurrection like a store receipt. If you're in a department store and you buy some clothes, you should always ask for the receipt. Why? Because if you're still walking around the store and a plainclothes security person can stop you and ask, excuse me, can I look into your bag? And if you don't have your receipt, you could get in trouble. So if somebody does stop you, You want to be able to hold up your receipt and say, Oh, plainclothes security person, trouble me not, (laughs) because this proves that all has been paid for, and I shall not pay for it again. You're not talking like your little Lord Fauneroy, but, I mean, you get my point. The resurrection is a giant receipt stamped across history for all people to see, a receipt that allows you to know for certain that your future is secure if you believe in Christ. Look at verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Those are sober, and if you don't know him, terrifying words. Essentially, Jesus is saying, make no mistake about it, I am the final judge. If you ask someone, who's the final judge of man, seldom will anybody ever answer anything but God. Now, this makes perfect sense, since only he can discern the intentions of the heart because he is omniscient. Only he can weigh the value of a person without hypocrisy because he is perfectly righteous. And only he can decide the fate of humanity because he made us and a sovereign. But why does the Father let Jesus do the judging? Because Jesus walked in the same places that we walked. He was tempted in all points like you and I. Hebrews 4.15 gives us this incredible and comforting encouragement. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are Yet without sin. So, what do we do? It goes on and says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so, Jesus can say, I'm in harmony with the Father. I do the same thing the Father does, including the judging. And because their wills are in perfect harmony, All judgment can be given to Christ in the assurance that his judgment will be, in fact, the very same as the Father's judgment. The Father has delegated all judgment to the Son because the Son is equal with the Father. Consequently, Jesus claimed to deserve the same honor due the Father. So we have learned that Jesus claimed to be equal with the Father in his works. He also claimed to be equal with the Father in executing judgment. Now to the Orthodox Jew, Jehovah God was the judge of all the earth. And no one dared to apply that majestic title to themselves. But Jesus did. By claiming to be the judge, he was claiming to be God. Acts 17.31 says, Because God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man, speaking of Jesus, whom he has ordained. It's always been my experience that those who have not yet believed in Christ react in one of two ways at the thought of God's judgment. Some simply refuse to believe it. They think quite wrongly that judgment is inconsistent with God's character. God is love, they argue. And so how can a loving God condemn anyone? The answer to this view is that God's love is not inconsistent with his judgment and that whatever we may think about the matter, the Bible quite obviously speaks of these two themes as being compatible. The other objection is more serious. These people believe that somehow it is shameful themselves to receive salvation through Christ. And the reasoning is that to receive salvation in this way is to depend on God's mercy and grace alone. And they would far rather face God's justice. They would say, I don't want mercy from God. All I want is a fair shake. All I want is justice. Honey, if you are unsaved, justice from God is absolutely the last thing you would ever want. We have just learned that Jesus the Lamb will carry out the judgment. That in itself is a powerful image. The Lamb who was slain for our sin will be the one executing judgment On all sin. He is the only qualified one to do so. The thing is, many people are uncomfortable with Jesus being the judge. They prefer gentle Jesus, meek and mild. But both are true. He is both Savior and judge. But we should think of his judgment in terms of the deep satisfaction that it should bring us. What do I mean? God cannot turn his back on sin, and we wouldn't want him to. We get livid when we read that another child has been raped, or another innocent victim has been murdered. We feel the desire for retribution. We all want the guilty parties to pay for what they have done. And so for God to sit back idly, And never deal with these issues would give us cause for great concern. We all need to realize that God is not amoral. He is loving, but he's also just. And in loving justice, he will powerfully adjudicate over his creation. This is why we are all in desperate need of a savior. The law can only do two things, and the bringing of salvation is not one of them. The law can either condemn or it can point to the Savior. Has it done that for you this morning? Perhaps I can help you to see this. And if you haven't already made a commitment by Christ, I can use an illustration that I first read from Donald Grade Barnhouse. He writes, Some time ago in a friend's house I came across an old balancing scale. It was the kind that was once used to measure out most dry goods and produce. It was a large one because my friend's family had been in the bakery business and had used this scale to measure flour and sugar for extremely large recipes. In this type of scale, a weight of fixed measure is placed on one side of the balance arm and the item to be weighed on the other. When there is enough flour or sugar or whatever, it may be on the one side opposite the weight, the arm will balance. Imagine now, you have before you that type of scale and God has placed the one pound measure of his perfection on one arm. This is the perfection that the law portrays and that God must demand of you on the basis of his nature. Nothing less than perfection in word, thought, and deed can satisfy him. What can you furnish to meet his demands? Here's a criminal, perhaps a thief or a murderer, who comes to present his goodness to God. He is not much by our standards, but even the most critical among us would not deny that he has some goodness. We acknowledge this when we say that there is honor even among thieves. And so the criminal comes and he places his goodness upon the scale. It's an ounce or two, but an ounce is not a pound and the scales are unmoved. We set the criminal aside and write over him the words of God's judgment. The average person now comes forward and places his good works on God's scale. He does much better than the criminal. The average person presents seven or even eight ounces. This is three or four times better than the criminal who has went before. But it is still not a pound. So the law accuses him also, and he too receives God's judgment. Finally, the best men and women come forward. They are the acknowledged leaders of our society just as the scribes and Pharisees will acknowledge leaders of theirs. They may be social workers, ministers, professors, or philanthropists. They are all better than the average man. They may even present 11 or 12 ounces of attainment. Still, their 11 or 12 ounces is not a pound and also falls short on the scales of God's righteousness. And so they, too, join the rest of the race and are set aside. Barnhouse finishes by quoting Romans 3.23. The Bible says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It is for this reason that Jesus died. And because of that, he is worthy of all honor and which segues perfectly into verse 23, please. That all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So how should we view someone who says they deserve the honor given to God the Father? I like how one commentator put it. He writes, in a theistic universe, such a statement belongs to one who is himself to be addressed as God or to stark insanity. The one who utters such things is to be dismissed with pity or scorn or worshiped as Lord. The same option confronts us this morning. Either John is supremely deluded and must be dismissed as a fool or his witness is true And Jesus is to be ascribed the honors due to God. There is no rational middle ground in this. John R. W. Stott has written on this point, he writes, If Jesus who thus taught with authority was the Son of God made flesh, we must bow to his authority and accept his teaching. We must allow our opinions to be molded by his opinions, our views to be conditioned by His views, and this includes his uncomfortable and unfashionable teaching. That was very articulate. Basically what I want us to get is those who refuse to honor the son while claiming to honor the father are in actuality self-deceived. It is not up to man to decide that he will honor the one or the other. It's either both or neither. You know, today in religious circles, it's too easy for unbelief to contemplate God, the generic God, but not the Son. But knowledge of the one implies knowledge of the other. And hatred of the one implies hatred of the other. And denial of the one implies denial of the other. Paul further explained this in his words to the Corinthians. He writes, In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The glory that is from God shines in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel of the glory of Christ. So all those, these unbelieving Jews, thought they were worshiping God while rejecting his son. Such was not the case. For he who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. This was an astounding claim on Jesus' part. Because the father has commanded that all will honor the Son. In Philippians 2:9 Paul wrote, "For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know what that teaches us? Willingly or unwillingly, everyone will eventually obey the Father's command to honor Jesus Christ. The only difference is whether you do it as a son or a daughter or as a rebellious enemy. Once again, God has left us no middle ground. It's been said that if a great man ever enters a room, you should stand. But if Jesus enters the room, you should fall on your face. Jesus is either going to be your savior or your judge on the day that you die. As we finish up this morning, I once read about a teenager who didn't notice an oncoming truck as he crossed a busy Boulevard in New York city. But just before the young man darted in front of the speeding vehicle, A strong hand grabbed his shirt and pulled him back safely to the curb. Red with fear and adrenaline, the teen thanked the elderly man for saving him. Several weeks later, the same teenager was in court to stand trial for stealing a car. When the boy looked up at the judge, he recognized him. Hey, you're the man who saved me a few weeks back when the truck was coming, exclaimed the man. Surely you can do something now. "'Sorry, son,' replied the magistrate. "'On that day I was your Savior. "'Today I am your judge.'" Father, I pray that everyone in here would only know you as that Savior. None of us wants to know you as the judge when it comes to sinning. We want to be in Christ, perfected in Him, that when He looks at us, He sees us through that filter of blood. And I pray, Father, that you would take these words this morning and throughout the rest of this week, they would just echo in every heart in here. And you would just draw us to yourself in whatever way that we need to be. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank you. This first uh, Sunday of the month, we'll be having communion. I ask Elder Haynes to come back up.